So I think that, you know, having a mission or having a purpose is really key to, mm-hmm. to motivation and doing good in the world. But that the definition of that doesn't have to be what everyone else, you know, typically thinks it is. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, your own definition. It can be a broader definition. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of speaking with serial entrepreneur, advisor and investor Dan Sutira. Dan has started a number of tech companies which he's either sold or has created meaningful value that eventually it will sell at some point. When you have a look at Dan's resume, it looks as though everything he touches literally turns into gold. More recently, Dan was the co-founder of Futurism, a technology-focused media company that boasts over 5 million monthly uniques. The company was recently acquired. His most recent project is Parallel Markets, which brings liquidity to private investors in the cryptocurrency market, which looks as though it's about to be another hit for Dan. On this episode, we talk all things product from ideation to execution and process. Dan seems to have these down to a T, so make sure you have your notepads at the ready. Okay, let's get into the episode. So Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Dan, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? How do I introduce myself to people? Uh, you know, Dan Sutera, but I think uh, as far as if they ask me what I do, uh, I tell them I'm an entrepreneur. I've been doing startups for a while. My current startup is Futurism Markets, which is a company that, well, we started in the crypto space, but we kind of pivoted a little bit because crypto is a little bit dicey right now as far as regulations. So what we're focused on right now is helping uh, private companies uh, or shareholders in private companies or shareholders in funds or owners of a building even uh, if they want to, usually if they, if they have ownership, they're, they're locked up for probably five, 10 years before they can get any sort of liquidity. And so if one partner maybe wants to sell half of his stake to send his kid to college or something like this, we have a software platform where uh, one partner can sell out to another partner at a given price. So that's kind of what we're working on now. And uh, it's an idea that's been around for a while, but I think it's time has finally, finally come around where mm. people are open to the idea yeah, because I, f- I feel like some people want to, like, liquidate some of their crypto now. <laughs> yeah, there's tons of investors right now that are uh, kind of have, have a lot of, you know, money or, or, or gains on paper. Yeah. But they haven't really been able to realize it, so they're ready to kind of to make good on some of that. Yeah. No, that's good. And so before we st- start talking about tech and all the great things you've been doing, uh, talk to me about early life. So how did you get involved in tech? Uh, yeah, I thought I was going to be an engineer. I actually tried engineering when I was uh, at university. And so you kind did of, CS, right? 
I, I ended up doing CS. Yeah, I found out that the uh, all the circuitry and hardware was 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 a bit much for me. So <laughs> I, I leaned towards the um, the the software side of thing, and in particular, I gravitated towards really um, the UI and graphic design. I remember when I was a, a senior in high school, we had a I think it was a Pascal or something class. Uh, I'm a little old, so um, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like punch cards and things like no, not, not, not but um, but no, I made I made it was it was kind of like the 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 pick the level of pixels was a uh, cursor, and so I made this Jeopardy game out of basically uh, blocks wow. and uh, had a lot of fun with that. But but you know even throughout um, uh, university, I graduated in uh, in 2000. And these were kind of early days of kind of web development and, and front-end programming. Uh, I think JSP had just become around and, and things like this. Yeah. So, But I was always kind of the one on the team that was focused on the front-end even before there was such a thing called, you know, like front-end design and yeah. product design and yeah. things like this. And so, um, yeah, so when I graduated, uh, I took a job right before the first crash in, in Austin, Texas at, at this company at the time was hot. It's called uh, Trilogy. And, uh, yeah, so I was the, the, the front-end guy, the one that was able to kind of take the designer's designs and convert them into something that actually looked like what the designers wanted. Yeah. Um, because back then it was very difficult to, to do that, especially because the browsers were really shitty. And yeah. I, Sorry, I don't know if I can swear. You can, yeah, it's okay. what you want. Yeah, the, you know, it's like Netscape. <laughs> Three and all these different like black things. and it, it, green screens. It was it was, it was horrible. <laughs> um, so you had to optimize for all these browsers yeah. and stuff. So um, so yeah. So I gained some some initial skills uh, doing that, and that also kind of got me uh, familiarized with just the graphic design process. And over time, uh, you know, learning the graphic design tools, I was able to kind of pick up some design stuff myself. And then um, and then yeah, that's kind of how how I got into it. Um, and then as far as startups go, uh, about Three months after I went to Austin, the whole company got laid off. Like this was oh, back wow. in 2000, so the whole thing just kind of kind of imploded. The first wave of the the pets.com and all yeah. that that just imploded. So everyone got laid off, but it was fine because we all got you know we were all you know paid off you know eight, 21 and they gave us three months severance, so it was, oh, it was great. Um, so then is that when you went into novel project? Yeah, so I had s- some of my friends from Duke, um, actually two of my friends that I live with, and they're now married, husband and wife, but um, they actually invited me to, to come out and uh, to do sales for them, which was a terrible idea. I was, <laughs> I was not, not good at sales, but I was good at you know the programming and the front-end design, the project yeah. management, and so I kind of got into that with them, and I never really... Again, back then there wasn't such a thing as kind of bootstrap startups the way that there is now in the, all the all the ecosystem. So we, I guess, technically had a startup, but back then we were just quote unquote making websites for people. So it was more of a service company, and yeah. we, we would, you know, send out a, a proposal, and somebody would hire us to do the the website. And then the websites got progressively more complicated, and we started to productize. Some of the some of the back end pieces to make websites, um, and then uh, eventually we got um, more and more into product. And by the end of that company, we actually created uh, ShareFile, which was again this is pre this is about two thousand three two thousand four. So this is before Dropbox, yeah. before Box, before um, Google Drive. Yeah. So it was an early version of that, 
and our target market was for small businesses. Okay, so yeah. before you got into ShareFile, what yeah. happened with Novel Project? So that ultimately was like an agency, I guess. Yeah, I would say it was like a web design agency. Website. Yeah, and then you know, you're doing graphic design, building websites for companies for people. And then do you sell it? Do you shut it down? Or? Yeah, so we actually spun it out into, we had, we had four founders. And the, I mean, I guess this is kind of a, a lesson that's probably been learned more, more recently. But, but back then we had four founders that were all equal, equal founders. And we had this idea that we were all going to unanimously vote on every decision. And it was just a disaster because, um, you know, you want to have one captain of the ship essentially. Yep. And then, you know, you can debate and obviously have an executive team before, but ultimately you want to be steering in one direction with one kind of, dic- you know, benevolent dictator yep. of a company. Um, so even, even when I have two two people yeah. in a company, like two co-founders, I, I say either I'm the CEO or you're the CEO and I'll fo- like, if we, we'll try to choose together, but ultimately if we disagree, we'll go with, you know, whoever, we'll go with one person. Yeah. So anyways, what happened was we had four people pulling in four directions and, mm-hmm. and over time, it, we all had different ideas of what we wanted to do. So we figured out this clever way to uh, split the company into three companies, one being the, the web agency, one being a design agency, uh, which is now called Brooks Bell, that's kind of continued to, to do really well, and this third one, which was which was ShareFile. And mm-hmm. we had this uh, crazy exercise where we all had 100 eggs, and we, uh, we were three baskets, and we each got to put like a certain number of eggs in each basket, and then uh, as much as we wanted to, we could rearrange the eggs, and then that was how we divided the equity in, in each of the in each of the companies. <laughs> Interesting. So this, this is like a long time ago, before there was you know you didn't have these um, VC blogs and things like this yeah, that told you, you had like how things are doing. We had we had eggs, and it seemed like a logical solution to you know so we can all walk away friends. And like, like physical that. eggs, right? No, I mean this is, these were vir- okay. virtual. Okay, you know, I was like, all right, I was like, like whiteboard eggs. Okay, but it was interesting because if like if I had one egg and put it in one of the companies and my friend put one of his eggs there's only two eggs in that basket mm. out of the 400 eggs but we would each split 50 50 that mm. company and so then you could continue to rearrange until everyone was like kind of reached this equilibrium okay that makes sense it was, it was a funny uh, uh interesting exercise but that was that was what happened we had so we ended up with three companies uh brooks bell still going on the novel projects sold to another web development company and then jess and i uh took um you know share file forward right and then share file so i guess like you said the first learning in that whole instance was like have founder agreements from early on (laughs) (laughs) or yeah i think i think it's to you know to try to be as upfront about expectations Mm. as possible so what i do now the first thing i do when i'm starting a company which i just the futures of markets is my eighth kind of real company that I was involved in. Like I'm not, I don't count for instance, like Brooks Bell. Um, but what I try to do is uh, before anything, I try to sit down and have kind of an open discussion about what are the expectations. And I create what's called a, a nutshell agreement. And it's just basically a one page, you know, PDF or maybe, maybe two pages, but it's, you know, what's going on with the equity, who's going to, how are decisions being made? What's everyone's role in the company? How do we see the culture playing out? Are mm. we going to sell this thing? Are we not going to sell this thing? Yeah. Try to get as much, you know, it doesn't have to be long winded, but just kind of what are all the expectations and vision going forward. Yeah. And then from there, we take that document and give it to the lawyers to draft the operating agreement and all that sort of thing. But okay. it's better to have that simple agreement to say like, 
I'm planning on staying, you know, here forever. I'm, I'm planning on working here for four years, and then I want to do something else after that. So just all the cards are on the table. Right. And, you know, of course things can change, but it's better to have those expectations laid out explicitly from, from the beginning. So that was, that was one big learning I took away from that. With Sharefile, like you said, it was the Dropbox before Dropbox. Yeah. It was the cloud-based sharing system, right? Yeah. Really before its time. Yeah. So how did that start? How did you start that? How did you and Jess start that? Uh, we Well, originally the idea came, we were using it for kind of for ourselves, mm. a, a similar tool to kind of keep track of our documents online uh, in, in kind of a cloud yeah. format. And then we found some some interest, some early interest from some of the websites that we were building. Um, some of them also like to use this 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 format. And then similarly for Brooks Brooks's company, um, they had a lot of design assets that they wanted to keep essentially on the cloud right. and share those design assets both internally between the employees and also with the clients. And so the clients could basically log in and see the folders and things like that. Right. So that that's kind of where the idea came from. And we thought it was was pretty useful, um, and so we decided to kind of kind of build it out and prototype it. Um, and our first step, I mean, if you want to try to start to get into the design process and or, or sorry, the the product process and vetting out the idea, what we did first was we actually took about a month, and we before we wrote a line of code. We just mocked it up. You know, we did the wireframes, and we took the wireframes to people and said, "Hey, wh what do you think about this?" Yeah. Then we colored in the wireframes. We made real mocks, and we kind of had this whole packet of maybe, um, you know, maybe like 20, 30 pages. And what we did was we sat down with somebody and said, "Hey, here's the homepage. What do you see?" We did usability tests. Yeah. Like, what do you see? What do you like? What would you think to click on? And then they would point to the page. And, and then we would flip the page to the other page that it would take. So it was basically like the InVision mock yeah. where you, you kind of... Oh, you did, yeah, two products before it's time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is like the paper version of yeah. InVision. Um, and so, you know, it took about a month. We thought this would happen fast. Like yeah. We thought this would be like, oh, we'll do this for a week or two weeks. And it kind of, I mean, month isn't a, a long time, crazy, but, yeah. but you're, you're always tempted to kind of jump in and, and just build the thing right mm -hmm. away. Um, and I think that this is kind of a theme that, that I've found recurring is that the key to product, aside from just general intuition, is you got to check your ego at the door. Yeah. Because no matter what you think uh, will work or what you think people will like, mm -hmm. It's never exactly the case, and never. you always want to kind of test it and gut check it, and and you know do the usability tests and mm. ask people, and then you you learn and you iterate. So we did one round of that with the with the wireframes, another round of that with the mocks, and we changed it quite a bit from from our original uh, uh, scheme. And so then after the uh, that 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 month, we started to build it out. It took another month to kind of 
coded up the bit the first version and then probably another month the last month we spent just debugging it and it was probably the only product we've ever made or i've ever been involved with where we got the the uh what do you call it the bug list down to zero wow. before we launched it so which, that's three months yeah so that was a th- it was it was pretty quick that's, the mean, lean salsa. that's good but we were uh you know we were we were working night and day i, I had a lot more energy back then yeah um but uh, but then the other thing that that happened was this was the same time that Google uh, AdWords came out, right? And so back then, no, there was no competition on AdWords, so you could get a ton of customers for really cheap. Yeah. So I think we were getting customers for fifty bucks or something, like our acquisition cost. And the good uh, old days, eh? Yeah, the good old days. <laughs> and and then you know, and that was a probably a six hundred dollar lifetime value, or so, you know, we were estimating. Yeah. Um, so we got a lot of early feedback from customers. Um, and they will find you purely through Google AdWords. Yeah, exclusively for AdWords. And I, and I found out online that you guys didn't actually raise money for this. Right. And you had no freemium model. Uh, that is correct, I think. We had, yeah, no freemium. We had a 30-day trial, I think. And then, yeah, we had a 30-day trial, and then we would just kind of convert people right away. And back then, you could also, I don't think you can do this anymore, but we would get their credit card information. And so, like, after the 30 days, it would just just start. Um, But but one of the interesting, other interesting things we did on kind of the product slash sales side is when uh, every... the, the, the interface looked a lot like Dropbox when you log into Dropbox, essentially. Yeah. But we would customize it because we were selling to companies like law firms or, um, uh, you know, accountants or whatnot. So as soon as somebody signed up for a free trial, not even for a paid account, we would go in ourselves and we would skin it. So we would have uh, pick a color scheme so all the buttons and, and text would change, you know, purple and green or whatever the color scheme of that accountant was. Yeah. And we would put their logo up at the top so it really felt like oh, it wow. was theirs. And then we would kind of follow up with emails or phone calls and say, hey, we made this thing for you. So that really helped conversion. Customization. And eventually we had to hire like an intern just, just to do just that to, all day. Wow. <laughs> but uh, but it worked. That's crazy. And you guys actually scaled up to 3 million customers at one point, is that correct? Uh, I think it was maybe 3 million accounts, yeah. but but I think it, that wasn't kind of paid customers. But what would happen is you'd have uh, a business that would sign up, and then uh, and I think they ended up getting up to about 10,000 or something like this. Right. And then from there, they would have all these employees and all these uh, clients that would be would have logins, essentially, yeah. to, to get into it. Okay. So that's cool. Yeah. So at your peak, how many... Um, employees did you have? Yeah. Well, to be clear, on this thing, and this kind of goes back to expectations, I was only there for those for those three months because right. we, when we started Novel Projects, and again, this was before there was any, um, what do you call it, uh, like precedent for, for startups and things like right. this, we, we had a four-year vest for, from each other. And our understanding at the time was, okay, four years is up. Um, you know, go go your go do whatever you want. You're free. To, now it's more like the expectation uh, for most places is you after you vest, you kind of continue on yeah. with the thing, yeah. uh, unless expli- unless explicitly agreed upon otherwise. But at the time, I was kind of like, okay, I did my four years. I, I did the startup thing. Um, let me let me move on now. And so, because I wanted to uh, to do something else, I thought I wanted to, to teach at the time. And so I ended up leaving Sharefile after three months and. Um, which and this this is something that happens a lot. I've seen this over and over and over again, mm. where a few years into uh, a company, like you might be fifty fifty partners, but but then somebody leaves or something changes or the so things change over time, and right. what was fair in terms of equity in the beginning uh, might not be fair later. And so, 
in that case, uh, basically, I, I volunteered, or we, Jess and I came to an agreement where I gave up a bunch of equity to him, and uh, and he said, okay, like I'll continue running this company, yeah. uh, and we we were both kind of happy. But you know, I was I was vested, but it wasn't it wasn't right for me to to walk away with all the equity that I had vested, yeah. and also he wouldn't have continued on anyway. So there's a lot of times where even if you're vested, you kind of have to to talk with your partner about what's what's fair if you're not going to kind of stick. stick with the original the original plan. So are you more in an advisory capacity at that stage when you had left? No, at that point I was I, well, I actually did a, a trip around the world at that point. So so I was I was pretty much out. Oh. Um, okay. Yeah. And then um, so that but, happens. Yeah, yeah. Sherfile eventually sold to Citrix. Yep. Um, it was about 7 years later, I so, think. That's a long time. So it's yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he and he I mean, again, this is, goes back. He thought it was going to be a couple of years. I mean, we had the, we had the model, but these things always always take longer and now yeah. now people realize these are going to be 5 to 10 year horizons uh, for for startups, which again comes back to what I'm working on now is trying to get liquidity uh, for people, yeah. you know, prior to that. Awesome. So then after Sharefile, like you said, you went traveling for a while. Mm-hmm. And then is that when you fell into Yext? Yeah, so I thought I was going to be uh, to be a teacher. And yeah. so I came back to, after my travels, I came back to New York and started um, started uh, doing some after-school program teaching because uh, the school year had already started. And so since I was only doing after-school at that time, uh, during the morning I wasn't doing anything. I was, yeah. I was like, watching the Cosby show or Felicity <laughs> or whatever. And so, so I was like, i got to get out of the house yeah. and... and, uh, and um, uh, Howard, who was who was kind of the CEO of of Yax, he he was friends with my other friend Jess from Sharefile. They uh, we all went to Duke. I didn't know Howard before then, um, but Jess and Howard knew each other. So I went kind of part time in the morning to help help out um, Yax, or as it was known at the time, it was called Gym Ticket. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So when we when Yax started, it was it was called Gym Ticket, and all we were doing was we were trying to provide uh, gyms with new members. Uh, and um, Actually, I think Adam mentioned this because <laughs> I had him on the show last week. And, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so what would happen was uh, we would basically do AdWords advertising uh, and say, like, hey, come find, find a gym in your area. And we had a website called gymticket.com. Yeah. And once we got a lead, we would, we would give that lead over to a gym and um, – and once, that, and actually, we would we would literally fax a quote unquote gym ticket to the gym. We wow. use faxes. This is crazy. Um, and then they would get kind of a certificate. Uh, and then once the person signed up for the gym, we would charge uh, uh, the gym seventy five dollars. But that model totally didn't work. Yeah. So then we switched to providing just five dollar leads for a free trial to the gym. And then gym ticket expanded into we, we had a, added a second one for for veterinarians called like local vets. Um, and so on and so forth. And so that company, uh, that was the original version of, of Yax. So you guys were like creating landing pages, I guess. Oh, my God. It created just, <laughs> just so many, so many landing That's pages. That's similar to how uh, yeah. Wayfair started, right? Uh, maybe. The furniture I, store. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that's crazy. So gym ticket to Yext. Yeah. So talk about that transition in terms of like product. Yeah. So well, what happened was... Um, Gym Ticket was wildly popular, and then, and then Vets was even more popular. 
uh, because what we were, we started, we moved away from, uh, so with Gym Ticket, we basically were sending emails to the gym, say, hey, here's a free trial of this person. Yeah. Then with Vets, what became really interesting was we were uh, putting phone numbers on the AdWords page so that we'd have the landing page, there'd be a phone number on it, and then the phone number would call up the vet and we could listen in on the call. We did this uh, eventually, first of all, manually, and then second, we did it automatically. We would listen to the call, and if it was a new, uh, like, dog owner, mm. then we would charge the vet, I think it was 25 bucks or something like that. Hmm. So for the vet, it was great because their phone would ring just like usual, and they would get charged a fee, and then we would just kind of arbitrage the how much it costs for us to get somebody from, from Google AdWords uh, to get that uh, $25 fee. And that worked crazy well, and we started to go into more and more verticals. So our premise was that we could go into every category in the yellow pages, uh, start going down plumbers and TV repairmen. Yeah. But what happened was, and, and, and the thing was taking off like a rocket ship, and we had some offers to buy it that were crazy. Uh, and then what ended up happening is um, at some point it tapered off because we realized that we kind of got lucky with those first couple, uh, and, and some of them didn't work as well uh, as we thought. A lot of them didn't work as well as we thought. And so what, and this was a, kind of a, a bold move by, by Howard and the executive team, is they ended up taking that business, which was a pretty sizable business at the time. I think it was probably valued around maybe $300 million or something like that. Wow. And they basically spun it off, um, and they ended up selling it to IAC, um, Everyone sells everything. To and they, yeah, <laughs> I see it's a wild, a wild place. Um, and then they start. They started fresh. Basically, they started with a brand new product that kind of grew from zero to the. You know, I, I don't know what the cap is, market cap is today, but it was like over a billion dollars. Yeah, it's IPO. Uh, IPO with a brand new product. That they started about uh, three years into the company. Hmm. So it was a very interesting pivot. Yeah, um, you were along for the majority. Of and I was there through basically the creation of that new product, uh, which was called Powerless. Basically, Yex now is, um, uh, they connect, um, it's, it's a database of local business data, yeah. essentially. So uh, a company like Domino's or something like that, they have mil- you know thousands of locations across the country, and with each one has its own address and phone number yeah. and, inf- and you know photos and reviews and information. And they need to make sure that that data is updated on, you know, Google and Yelp and Facebook and, mm. you know, City Search and all these all these different places. And so basically Yaks acts as a middleman where Domino's can enter the data there. And then that data gets pushed out to, you know, Alexa and all these other places. Okay, how? <laughs> well, the how, the how is why Yaks is a valuable company is because they actually had to do cut deals with each one of those places mm. one by one wow. cut a deal with yahoo cut a deal with facebook okay. and in the beginning the way that they started doing it is they actually had to pay money to each to for instance yahoo they had to pay them a couple bucks per location to get yahoo to Give to list them, to list them yeah. then eventually it became uh like a fr- kind of a free service where you know it was a we we did yes didn't have to pay anymore yeah. <laughs> at, at some point yeah. it, it, became, yeah. it became the data itself became useful enough that those that those other partners would would say okay we're going to use it as a trusted as a trusted partner so strategic partnerships ultimately yeah but it's also the reason why it's very difficult for competitors to kind of come yeah, into this space no one's, no one's going to have that so, deal yeah and they have actually direct database so like if you come in and say um, I set up a new Domino's 
um, you know, in Soho, then basically they can push that data directly to Google um, into into the search results. So they actually wow. have a direct engineering wow. uh, link. Yeah, so it's pretty fascinating. That's incredible. And so in on the product side of things, which part of the product at Yex were you more focused on? Were you focused on, on that side of things and like how do we make sure that the tech works to go out to everyone instantly or are you more on the front end side of things? Yeah, more on the front end. Um, I, I don't even – see, even that product that I just described, it went through obviously – uh, maybe not obviously, but it went through several iterations of how much do we charge? Like, what do we? Yeah. We called it power listings. We called it this, that, the other thing. Um, so there was a, a lot of iteration that had to go on. So I was there for about maybe the first year's worth of, of that product, um, kind of coming to fruition. And were there any kind of like key learnings that you took from that experience? I mean, basically, you came in at the beginning to you know watch them go to IPO. I mean, that's an incredible journey. Uh, yeah, well, I, to be clear, I wasn't there. Uh, it continued to grow quite a bit yeah. between because I, I kind of ended in, in 2010. And this was it was probably a 13-year process, um, I think, from the time that they started, 2005, until they IPO'd in, I think, 17. Wow. So it was, it was quite, a, quite a long haul. Um, but I think the... You know, it's the similar, the same process that we ran through when it was, you know, Jess and I, just you know, two people doing, doing a lot of the things with with Sharefile. Um, you know, it's a very similar process. I think the second time around at at Yex when they did the pivot, there was a lot more moving parts, yeah. um, and I think the machinery um, was a little bit uh, trickier. What we one of the things that we did do was we created small teams within Yex. Yeah. I mentioned this before, but I was working with Adam Lieben, who you had on the show, and and another guy, Jonathan Betts, who was an early uh, Google uh, Google New York engineer. And we we had a SWAT team of the three of us, and, and the three of us were playing around with this product called a Yex Buzz, which was something to uh, to get business businesses more reviews. Mm. Um, that one never got off the ground, but but having kind of these small smaller startupy teams within a larger organization. It's, can sometimes cobbles. work yeah. to uh, to kind of kickstart things, um, but uh, but yeah, the same process applies. You still want to kind of go through the wireframes and the mocks and the vetting and the usability and, and yeah. all that. So I want to switch gears now and, and focus a bit more on like the product process, like sure. just been speaking about. So like what actually goes into creating the good products? Because like we like I said before recording, a lot of startups, you know, spend maybe like a year trying to build something before anyone sees it. Some people spend like not enough time and then throw it out. Like what? What goes in? What the inner workings of creating a good product? Yeah, like I said before, at each stage of the process, you got to check yourself. You know, you got to check your ego at the door. Um, so I would say, if I was starting something new, and, and actually, it's funny when we started Sharefile, we started the company without even an idea. We said, "Hey, we want to create a product." Um, but we don't even know what it is. So we had brainstorm sessions, and we would just come up with a bunch of different product ideas, and um, and eventually we would have one or two uh, that might stick. And um, I don't know if we did this with Sharefile, but we did this at one of my later companies when I was at uh, Futurism. We wanted to launch a physical product. We wanted to sell a physical product, and we had a lot of different ideas for um different kind of e-commerce products that we would sell. Mm. And what we did for that was, in addition to the brainstorm, our next step was to actually go ahead and make landing pages for this. And actually, we did this at, at Yex, too. But so for Yex, for instance, we did gyms and we did vets. And then the question was, well, how, which one, how do we know which industry to go into next? Right. 
Well, the answer is you kind of go into all of them or you go into several of them. So uh, whether it's Yaks figuring out what industry or whether it's, you know, futurism figuring out what what physical product to sell, you can create basically some sort of fake MVP version of it Mm. um, or a landing page version that you want to direct traffic to. And then you kind of test and see which one performs the best. So for Yaks, we could do, you know, five different verticals, um, you know, auto repair and TV repair and plumbing or whatever and create an actual landing page for it mm. and then drive drive $100 or a couple hundred dollars worth of traffic to it. Back then it was AdWords, but now you could do Instagram or Facebook right. or, or whatever um, and see, you, you kind of track, it's, it's a, you know, a funnel where you see how many people clicked on the ad and then you see how many people, uh, uh, Signed up. you know, like clicked to the second page and then how yeah. many people came to the third step of the process. And if you want to, you can go all the way to kind of like credit card, uh, you know, land to see how many people actually make the purchase. Although typically we'll stop before, you know, you don't want to mislead people. So usually what you'll say is, you know, at, at some point, yeah, you'll you'll say like address. you know enter your email address and, and this this is coming soon and we'll yeah. like we'll let you know when we're live. This is what um, Tim Ferriss did for for our what we. Yes, very very similar thing. You want to, you want to kind of drive traffic to it and see what the results are and that will and you know you can kind of get that down from five down to down to maybe your two most promising ones. Yeah, and then do a second round maybe with mm-hmm. with, with those two. And uh, over what time period? You run this. Uh, it can be it can be pretty fast. I mean, it doesn't take it doesn't have to take a long time. Usually, a few days even yeah. you know should give you enough. There there's a, there is a statistical model uh, of of how much traffic is statistically significant in order for you to make a judgment. And I think you know Google and Facebook basically tell you the winners at this point. Um, you used to have to kind of calculate it, but it's only it's only a few hundred people that you need yeah. to, re- to really kind to of feel, feel, feel comfortable yeah. with it. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, that's, that's kind of the first step. And then once you kind of land on, you know, for, with futurism, uh, we ended up doing, uh, the gravity blanket. Um, and what's the gravity, the gravity blanket is a, it's like a weighted blanket that, um, weighs either 15, 20, or 25 pounds. And it's been used for a long time for kids with autism or people with PTSD. But essentially, uh, some people really uh, like to sleep with heavy blankets, and it's kind of like a hug where it's supposed to release kind of serotonin or calm you down. Mm. Um, and again, some people uh, some people sleep, sleep with light, light blankets, and then we discovered about half the population really loves sleeping with heavy blankets. So it became kind of a wildly popular um, product. I think we were we ended up raising about five or six million on Kickstarter, and wow. um, I think it became maybe the nineteenth or twentieth most popular Kickstarter thing ever. And uh, it's continued to continue to go on, but that that came out of the same process. We tested a bunch of landing pages, we tested a whole a whole bunch of other products, mm. and then once you land on one product, you want to then take that one and do various versions of, of that product in terms of of like, do you pitch the heavy blanket as a space age technology sort of thing, or do you pitch it as um, you know, uh, a, 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 co- a cozy experience in yeah. the mount- in the mountainside. Like, what's your what's your brand all about? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's that's more of kind of the the the, the marketing uh, funnel side of the product thing. Uh, but in terms of most of my experience is is on the um, 
as on the software side of things, and that is where you want to get whether you're doing an app or, or some sort of um, you know web product. That's where you want to kind of do the the mocks and the wireframes and the, and the envision and and really start doing the user testing as early as possible on those things. And user testing is that with anyone who's listening, or is that with the ideal customer persona? Um, and like, how do you know? Because I've had a few kind of you know product people, entrepreneurs. Some are really against like showing people before it's ready, mm-hmm. and some are of the notion of like testing, wireframing, and put it in front of people. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think you got to put it in front of people, but yeah. I think it's... Because sometimes the feedback is, is you know, skewed. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the personas. That's another another great uh, thing to do is tr- figure out who your user is. And sometimes, a lot of times, you have multiple different kinds of users, so mm. you kind of can create personas or even even name your personas for the different kinds of users that you yeah. have and you, and you want to when you're doing your your testing you want to talk to those sorts of people um, but the thing with user test so first of all I'm not worried about people stealing my ideas sure. or even my uh, my product you yeah. know mocks I think it's it, ideas and, and mocks are easy what's hard is the execution piece so yeah. I really it's very very rare that I worry about theft of ideas or anything or copyright mm. or anything like that um, the uh, the big thing is that you don't need a lot of people you really like once you, I found once you hit four or five people there's you, you, you hit your 80 20 rule yeah um, you get a lot of the same people noticing the same things that is because you're kind of uh, in the woods, so you can't see kind of the forest through the trees. Yeah. But you'll see three people. You'll talk to three or four people, and they'll all say this, point out the same problem with your with your app. Yeah. Or hopefully, hopefully you haven't built the app yet. You're just yeah. at the mock stage, uh, and then you'll say, "Oh, shit! I gotta I gotta change that." Um, but again, it doesn't take a lot of effort. It's just that again, a lot of people are have too much ego, or they assume you might not call it ego, but you just assume that you know. You know what's going to work. Oh, it's definitely ego. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually reading a book right now, Ego is the Enemy, Ryan Holiday's. Yeah, that's a good one. It's great. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, very simply, it it does not take a lot of effort um, because people will say, like, oh, it's too much work. It's going to take too long. We want to just – and I have this temptation, temptation too, even now with my current company. I have to keep reminding myself to to do this and do this and do this is not just forge ahead and go ahead and engineer the thing because – you know, it's very easy, uh, especially if you're good at um, kind of just putting your head down and, and popping up 30 days later and having a, f- a functional quote unquote MVP. Mm. Um, I think it's I think it's better to to cut yourself early and start with the mocks and figure as much as possible. Figure out if you have that product market fit. Figure out if people even like like it or don't like it. Mm. Very early on with the with kind of the mock stage. So actually, where we're at right now with uh, with with my current company is we have a bunch of mocks and we're not sure about um, you know we talked about creating liquidity for these companies for people to trade their shares. We don't know exactly do they want to trade every day? Do they want to trade once a quarter? When they do trade once a quarter, how like what? So what we did was we just created a, a series of different mocks. Um, and then we're going to sit down with people kind of on a quote unquote sales side uh, or potential customers and say, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, what do you think? Would you do it this way? Would you do it this way? How much would you pay for this? And you try to do it with, um, you know, customers that, that, that are kind of friends and friendly that, you know, yeah. and just gets that initial feedback. So you don't just spend three months going down a rabbit hole and then you're, you know, you're a hundred thousand dollars in the hole and. You're kind of committed to your hand, you know, as far as like poker, and you don't want to fold it. And, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, that's when the real ego kicks in. Yeah, so it's, it's tough. It's, it's a lot. It's tough to change. It's much easier to change tack when it's just a, a piece of paper. Piece of paper. You know, you got like dev time, money involved. Yeah. it's like I've come too far. Yeah, no. And and how can would you classify yourself as a non-technical or technical product manager? Because you do understand. Yeah, I. I'm. I would, if anybody asks, I say not technical. <laughs> because if you say that you're technical, then they want you to code. Yeah. And, and I'm like, ah, no, yeah. it's, it's like a hole. Yeah. Oh, you know CSS? Oh, great. Yeah. Why don't you make our website? Yeah. It's like, but so, so how should non-technical founders approach kind of the product development? Is it, is it a Squarespace website? Is it a Wix website that their landing page is, you know, $14 a month? Like, how do you go about um, ideating? And yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think I think Squarespace is is probably one of my favorites as far as like the design side of things. Right. I think I think some of the other ones have gotten gotten better over time. Um, there's there's a lot of templates you can buy as well for for WordPress and things like this. But yeah, I think I think um, something like that for if you're going to do a landing page is sufficient. Um, it's pretty easy, you know, even for a non technical person at this point to kind of go in and you know, learn or, or you can take a quick course if you're not comfortable with, with Facebook ads, um, or, you know, Instagram ads or whatnot. Um, it's pretty easy to just kind of even non-technically go in and do that for yourself. Um, ideally, you know, it depends on what kind of company you're starting, but ideally you have some sort of go-to resource or uh, ideally you have a co-founder that, that is technical, Mm. but yeah, if you don't, um, you know, there is there is kind of a DIY uh, version of this where you can just kind of go into Squarespace and set that up. Um, I did th- even I do that sometimes. You know, if it's I was creating something for my sister uh, who was thinking about getting into you know blogging about you know moms and things like this, and so I just kind of you know I could I could go in and make a detailed website, but I, I just made a quick uh, Squarespace site for her in you know like an hour or two hours and uh, started throwing some traffic on, and we see see what performs. Nice, so, nice. And in regards to, I mean, you've done so many other projects. I mean, I guess you created Felix as well. Well, Felix is... Was uh, that the technology that you used at Yex to listen yeah, to the Yeah, so Jim so Ticket and LocalVest, all that became known as Felix. Right. And then they spun that off to, okay. to IAC. Yeah. And then Yex became the name of the new thing. Right. And so. then one of your other products, uh, Confined, the messaging app. Yeah, Confide. That's actually a great app. <laughs> yeah, shockingly. Yeah, yeah. yeah was, I was checking it out. I was like, "Wow, this is cool." Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's one of those things where it's been it's now profitable and it's been growing uh, steadily. It, you know, in the beginning, it's when something grows exponentially, it's really tough to tell if it's growing exponentially because it looks so linear. Yeah. And so it's it's been at that stage for a while. But WhatsApp was was the same way where, you know, for the first few years it was it looked very linear. Yeah. Um, hey, for those who don't know what Confide is. Con- Confide. Is Confide. So, so Confide is basically a, a secret messaging app uh, that was maybe most famous for being used at the White House uh, where the staffers were, were kind of – Leaking what was going on at the wow. White House, and then the White House banned, banned the app. Banned the app. Wow. Um, That's good PR. But yeah, yeah. So there's been a lot of kind of these these situations where you had you know leaks and email leaks at Sony and things like this. So it's basically uh, uh, when you type a message, 
uh, first of all, when you receive the message, you kind of have to, to, to move your thumb over it. It's kind of hidden. Mm. So if somebody's looking over your shoulder, they can't even read it. Uh, and then it kind of disappears. It, it explodes, and it's no longer there, and it's, it's like un- untraceable. Yeah, similar to, to Snapchat. Although I think it's pretty 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 unhackable as far as I know. Um so it was started kind of along the same time as, as Snapchat. As basically when Snapchat became really popular, we thought, hey, we could make an enterprise version of this. Or mm. it was re- Snapchat at the time was very popular with teens. Yeah. And so we wanted to make a more kind of adult enterprise version of it. Um, and it was funny. We actually, all of our initial users that we got feedback from were all VCs. So we, we it was kind of an interesting um, uh, marketing ploy, I suppose. It, yeah, it, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was somewhat unintentional. But um, did you end up raising from them? Yeah, so we we ha- all uh, we um, all of our initial beta users were all VCs, and so anytime a new user would come on, they all the other VCs would get a notification yeah. that that user joined, and you're like, oh wait, this person joined. Yeah. So we had all this all this crazy interest um, from VCs, and we had it. We had a bunch of really good ones like Google Ventures and uh, First Round, a bunch of them. Um, How much did you guys raise for that? Uh, Two million. And uh, and yeah, it's still it's still kind of going and growing linearly, linearly slash exponentially, and and uh, it's profitable. And but how many that w- people are on the team? Uh, that's just it's st- stayed small, so that's still three basically people wow. that are that are running it. That's great. Yeah, it's a cool product. Thanks. And how we, how we, it was just is it a referral program? How do people find out about you? Uh, I mean, there's some advertising, but I think a lot of it's word of mouth. Um, you know, you send a message to somebody else, and then that person sends a message to somebody else. So right. it kind of kind of grows, grows that way with a with a viral coefficient. Yeah, so it works. you try you try to get people to invite more than you know. If you invite one person and then they invite one point one people, then eventually that that ends up being an exponential curve. Yeah. Um, but with secret messaging apps, it's a little bit trickier than messaging apps where you can blast all your friends and say hey like you know send this send this photo to 100 people if you're on instagram works a lot better than send this secret message to you know, <laughs> 1.1 people yeah so that's crazy it's a slower process three people two million money <laughs> i mean raised it's not bad so, yeah <laughs> and so so with futurism um how did that idea come about and that's not a small media company either. I mean, at a time when media is actually quite struggling a lot. Yeah. I mean, you guys are doing over 5 million views a month. Yeah, media is tough. Um, so I would say that that company was kind of created out of love and created out of ignorance in, yeah. in, in, in some way. Yeah. Um, you know, after uh, I had a – we can come back to it, but I was doing a, I was doing a nonprofit in Africa for a bit and just the – there was so much travel that I wanted to find something local, mm. um, and so and something that I, I love to do. And I always loved reading about the future and, and technology and things like this, just in my spare time. And uh, so I was uh, uh, talking to a, a friend of mine that was well, uh, a guy Alex Glocus was running a, a Singularity meetup. Uh, in New York, and I was running a Singularity meetup in New York, and so we kind of met through that. Mm. And at the time, he had had this kind of um, a precursor to futurism, which was kind of like a Reddit site for future right. f- future type things. Yeah. And so I was advising him for a little bit, and and our idea with futurism was we wanted to have some way, or our idea was to kind of create this uh, futuristic site, but also we wanted to have a, 
an investing portion or investing arm associated with it. So we would like learn about the latest and greatest in terms of uh, you know science and tech, mm. but also then be able to invest in it as well. But what happened was the the media piece took off on us like crazy. Um, it was the time when Facebook started doing videos. So again. It's interesting because a lot of the things are on the, the very start of new technologies. Yeah. So we started you know, ShareFile on the very start of AdWords. We started Futurism on the very start of, um, of uh, Facebook video. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of competition. And we were one of the first ones that started doing the captioned videos that I've, you see all the time now. But back in the day, there was really nothing going on yeah. so we had this just an exponential explosion because we really went all in on that mm. so i think that's just kind of a general um thing to look for as a as an entrepreneur is what is the next trend in terms of growth uh, uh what, what's the next technology or platform where you can really kind of find that sweet spot in terms of growth hacking and usually these things have a limited window. So now, obviously, if you try to do that, it's super saturated and yeah, it's not going to work. So you got to kind of like look at what the next one is. And you don't have to be super early on it. I mean, it's as long as you're kind of just aware of the, the general landscape. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be the first one, but you can be the, the hundredth one and you still do you're fine still winning, with it. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of what happened is we, on how we got it to these, um, you know, 5 million or 6 million uh, followers on Facebook is, is following that trend. And then it kind of expanded out from there. And I think media is up for a kind of a demolition <laughs> soon because uh, venture <laughs> oh, cap- traditional media. Yeah, yeah, traditional. Well, yeah, traditional media, new media. It's, it's tricky because uh, for a long time, venture capital uh, companies were putting more and more money into, into media companies yeah. like, you know, Vox and BuzzFeed mm. and, um, um, and all these, all these sorts. But I think the, the realization is that there's, there's kind of a, it's difficult to make, to make revenue and difficult to make profits on it. There are ways to do it, but the, the amount of revenue that you can make on ads and things, especially now that Google and Facebook are taking such, yeah. such high margins, you, you have to stay lean. I think if you're, if you're doing anything in media now, you have to, it has to almost be like a mom and pop team yeah. where it's like, or, 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 like a, or a solo team where it's yeah. like you're a single person that has, uh, let's say a podcast and you have your own, you know, Facebook page and you can gain a personal following. Yeah. You don't have a lot of overhead and you can grow your audience to the point where maybe you can do some ad sponsorships and things yeah, like this. Exactly. That I think is a pretty good model for the, for the future. Um, but I think the traditional thing where you're hiring a bunch of employees and, you know, making videos and writing, you know, doing real journalism, it's very expensive. Mm. And with your some of your other projects, because um, I know Futurism, you take more of like an advisory position now, mm-hmm. part of the founding team. Now you're doing some great stuff that I found out about in Africa. So Zambia, you have impact enterprises and impact networks. Yep. Talk to us about that. How did that come about? Yeah, so... Is that I, part I, of your travels when you... Well, <laughs> I, I mentioned before that I was, I was thinking about going into teaching, and I didn't mention that I tried teaching in New York, and the kids kind of chewed me up and spit me out. <laughs> it's, 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 it's rough. Um, so, but I still, I still had this, uh, this, this yearning to kind of... Um, do something that I considered, uh, you know, good for society and, um, and to give back. And so that took the form of at the time, um, 
uh, Impact Network and went back to school to, to you know, get a master's in, in global affairs. And uh, a friend of mine had been doing some work out in Zambia, and he had started a school during his, his time at the Peace Corps in Zambia. So we uh, started talking about what we could do. And, of course, I have a passion for technology. And uh, this was around the, the time that, you know, Kindles and iPads just had just started coming out. So our idea was to basically take uh, an iPad and, and bring it out to uh, the teachers out in those areas. Mm. A lot of, uh, there was other organizations that were more student-focused, and I think it, it's really complicated to, you know, hand out 30 iPads in a classroom and in the middle of Africa and, like, not have them destroyed. Yeah. Um, it's a lot simpler. It can be done, but it's a lot simpler to have the teacher – uh, have an iPad connected to a projector, and then you project content on the walls, and you have lesson plans on the on the iPad. Mm. And it, it just from a, a cost leverage standpoint, it works really well because you have one teacher that teaches hundreds of kids mm. in this way, and it's actually cheaper than buying uh, a bunch of books and things. Um, so yeah, so that was the idea behind uh, Impact Network, and we now have scaled up to about forty five schools out in Zambia. And we're trying to partner with the government to kind of take that to national scale. That's incredible. Um, but it's, you know, nonprofits are, are really tough. Um, and I, I definitely don't recommend them in the sense that, <laughs> in the sense that it, they seem like a great idea, but there's... The lot of red tape. Well, it's not, it's not the red tape as much as it is, there's not a business model there. Um, or there's a limited business model. Like, it's not a scalable business model. Yeah. If you want to do uh, one school, let's say, uh, and you have and you want to throw a dinner once a year where your friends in New York donate money and it supports the school, that's great. But once you start doing two schools, three schools, ten schools, a hundred schools, now you know how big is your dinner got to be, yeah. you know, for to support yeah. that, and it's just not sustainable. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, uh, things most of the things that nonprofits do are like like education or healthcare. Um, they are uh, the responsibility of a government mm. that really can do things at scale. So the government should collect taxes, and then they should use that tax money to provide education and health to, right. the, to the people. Now, in places like uh, Zambia or, or things like that, a lot of times, the, uh, like ninety percent of the people don't pay taxes because they're farmers or they're, you know, they might have like a like a little shop or something, but yeah. it's kind of in the gray market. Yeah. So they're collecting ten percent of the tax revenue, and then they got to provide services for hundred percent of the people. Yes, yes. Something doesn't add up. Yeah. And so I think it's okay for uh, you know a temporary solution for um, you know nonprofits or government agencies like like World Bank to come in and and be kind of like a, a bridge solution, um, but eventually. You know, as the as the country progresses, it needs to, you need to be working with the government yeah. and as early as possible to be able to take that over. So, if you're thinking to start a nonprofit, um, first thing I would say is there's a lot of nonprofits. So I would go join one first and, and check it out, make sure you know what you're getting into. Mm. But second is to start with it, start with the end in mind. So have an exit plan. Like how, like where's this thing going to go? Like how, like if you, even if you're doing something in New York, you know, partner with the the city government um and to to kind of have a, a way to fund the program in a long-term mm-hmm. way so it gets tricky because nonprofits want to grow but the more you grow the more overhead you have and there's no revenue engine yeah no that makes sense unless yeah. you do a similar model to charity water where he's got like ultimately two businesses one people like one fund funds operations and one fund funds actual project projects yeah but even even with charity water so one thing with charity water that 
is nice is, and this is this is another distinction, but for nonprofit, some nonprofits just do fundraising, and then they pay other people to, for instance, build wells with yeah. charity water. We tried, <laughs> what we're doing is actually doubly hard, and a lot of organizations do this, is that we are raising the money and we're running the schools mm. at the same time, which is double the work. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing to think about. With, uh, with Charity Water, uh, they're still in that traditional model where they, the more wells that they build, the more money that they have to raise. Yeah. They don't have um, a business associated with it. Uh, and there also is this kind of myth uh, of this kind of um, impact business or, uh, you know, like social, social business. Yeah. And what I've found is that for the most part, it's very, it's a bit of a myth. I haven't found that many that work really well. Mm. The ones that I've found work the best, and this is what Impact Enterprises is, are ones where the mission is to create jobs. Mm. So with Impact Enterprises, it's just a, basically an outsourcing company in, in Zambia. And we are just, the more we grow the outsourcing business, the more jobs we create. And the more jobs you create, the more profit you create. So it makes sense. Where it gets dicey is, let's say we were running this outsourcing business with 100 people, and then we decided to give away 50% of our revenue to, um, I don't know, to build wells. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's great to build wells. Mm. But the problem is, and you know this as an entrepreneur, is that it's profits are hard to come by. Yeah. And, and when you do have profits, the best thing you can do with a profit is to reinvest it in your business and so that the business can grow. Yeah. So if I have this outsourcing company with 100 people and I'm making some profits, the best thing is to grow it to 150 people mm-hmm. and then to, to you know, exponentially grow it to 300 and yeah. so on and so forth. And I'm creating exponentially more jobs over time. If I'm using 50% of my profits to build wells, um, then that is money that is not spent, you know, growing that business. So what's going to happen, best case scenario, is I'm going to stay at 100, 150 people and build some wells. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a question of whether you want to do things at scale or whether you want to keep things at kind of a, a one-off level. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, really good way of, of looking at it. I didn't think about that before. Interesting. So I want to work towards uh, wrapping up now sure. and ask some rapid fire questions that I tend to ask all guests. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the first question is, what is or who is your biggest inspiration? What is or who is my biggest inspiration? Hmm. That's a good one. Uh, I would say I, I'm, a, I'm a big basketball guy and I would say Coach K is, is I don't a, even know that. Oh, he's, a, he's the head coach of the Duke University basketball program. Ah. Um, I would say he's he's an inspiration to me just in the way that he leads in terms of his leadership style. Um, I've I've been able to see him not only a lot of people you know have split opinions let's just say about, about <laughs> whether, whether they like Duke or not but 
but when you see him kind of behind closed doors and the way that he, he interacts with people and the way that he interacts with his players, and I've been able to see him kind of one-on-one mic'd mm. up um, with a microphone on during his practices, and he kind of curses like a sailor. And he's, you know, he's very direct and honest and authentic with his players. He doesn't bullshit them. And, you know, one second he'll be, uh, you know, you know, praising them and in, in, in a very positive way, and the next second he'll be he'll be cursing them for something that they did wrong. It's, it's a bit of a, a Bobby Knight style, who was his coach, yeah, um, and who another controversial guy. But I think just that that style where you're very um, leadership wise, where you're honest and direct with people, and you get in this habit of, um, you know, just just constant feedback and constant. Uh, communication, good and bad with yeah. people, it, it it starts to become a habit. Um, and I think if you don't do that, um, then things can go unsaid and silent for a long time, and then it becomes a bigger deal yeah. uh, when when finally like things have to to when when, there, when there's when there is a big issue. Um, I, I think it becomes a bigger deal. So just that constant communication, whether it's in, in business or in a relationship, I think, you know, being upfront and precise and, and about all the good and bad. Um, think and, and again, this comes back to when, the, when day one, when you start the company, this is the kind of thing you want to do with your co-founders is like be super honest with them about what you want, mm-hmm. what you don't want, where you're planning on going yeah. and, and where you're not. And if things change uh, a year in, Okay, but at least you have that trend where you can you can have that real conversation with them. Yeah. Uh, favorite podcast? <laughs> uh, aside from this one, uh, <laughs> I like the um, uh, I like the uh, this week in startups, but mostly I like when he does the news roundtable. Uh, I wish he would just do the uh, the news all the time, but uh, I find that very amusing. Uh, I listen to. Uh, Ferris occasionally, Joe Rogan a bit. Um, yeah. I like Up First as well. I get my news from that uh, in the morning. Um, kind of gives a, a quick summary of the news and commentary. Okay. Uh, favorite blog? Uh, favorite blog? Uh, I don't really have one. I don't really, not a big blog. Not a big okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pass on You're going to pass on Okay, <laughs> favorite book? One book. Uh, I would say The Singularity is Near which is a book that was written, I think, back around uh, 2004 or five. So it's a little bit dated. I think mm. Ray Kurzweil wrote it, and he's coming out with an updated version. But it was kind of kicked off uh, my passion or my interest. It's kind of like the nerd rapture, that, that basically this idea that by 2030, I think he said, or maybe it was 2045 originally, uh, that basically uh, AI and... Um, Machines are going to kind of take over. There's going to be this – basically the idea is that uh, technology is getting exponentially better, in particular things like AI and genetics and and, uh, uh, things like this, to the point where you're eventually going to have uh, an AI, for instance, that's going to be able to be so smart that's going to be be able to create another AI that's even smarter than than it. And so you get this kind of exponential explosion in intelligence and things just get so weird that we don't know what's going to happen if if humans are going to merge with machines or... Things just kind of go off the rails. Wow. So it's, was this called Nerd Rapture? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It. People call it, people call it the Nerd Rapture because it's like this. It's like this, almost like this the second coming re- of religion where, where it's like <laughs> at at some point my miserable life is going to be saved by you know machines. merging with machines or something like this. But it has a lot of really um, 
Kurzweil tends to be really good at predicting things, um, and not just the singularity, but other things, innovations in terms of VR, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, things in terms of genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're starting to see these genetically modified uh, humans, which is kind of some of the things that he was predicting. Plants, and, um, you know, you've got biofarming, biotech farming now. Yeah, he talks a lot about, in the book, some things that I'm still eager to see, which is... Uh, you know, having some sort of uh, like little implant, like we have the Apple Watches now, yeah. But some some sort of uh, implant under the skin that that's able to track, you know, your glucose and all like all of your uh, health data. I think we're approaching that. Where I mean, we they've can... got that for dogs now. Do they? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, favorite IG account, Instagram account? Uh, mm, not not a big Instagram. I'm, I'm old school. So Twitter. What's that? Favorite Twitter account. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I, I try to. I've, I've been trying to uh, kill my social media for, for the most part. I'm trying oh, yeah. to trying to do more podcasts and reading and things like yeah, that. Yeah, you and me both. So, uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do, other than learning Italian? <laughs> uh, well, wish I could do. Yeah, speaking Italian fluent would be nice, but uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> To follow on with another idea that is in the Kurzweil book, the one invention I would love to have, and he had in his book, is he had this idea of having these little uh, micro robots that would kind of swim around in your stomach and and make sure and kind of eat or or make sure that you had the right level of uh, nutrients, you know, because you have all these uh, daily requirements of iron and vitamin B and, you know. Uh, carbs and proteins. And yeah. So basically, it's this idea that you can eat whatever you want, and uh, the the bots would take care of the uh, the homeostasis for you. That is cause, so you want a worm, basically. <laughs> I want, a, I want a, po- a positive uh, <laughs> metallic parasite. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to your twenty one year old self? Oh boy. Um, hmm. That's a good one. I would say the advice I would give is that, you know, giving back or having a mission has can have a much broader definition than, than what you think or than what I thought. So I thought at the time that I had to, you know, be a teacher or I had to, like, literally go to Africa in order to make a difference mm-hmm. in the world. And what I realized is that you know the people out there uh, are are people? You know they're they're the same sorts of people: good, bad, rich, poor, mm-hmm. um, as the people you know in in the United States, the people in your hometown, and even with Impact Enterprises, you know we're our mission was to create jobs. I realized, well, shit, I was creating jobs doing um, you know you know doing startups in the u.s Mm. and so with you know some of my more recent companies like uh you know futurism i think the mission there was to educate people about the future with futures and markets you know we want to make private investments eventually available to unaccredited you know common investors so i think that you know having a mission or having a purpose is really key to, Mm -hmm. to motivation and doing good in the world but that the definition of that doesn't have to be what everyone else, you know, typically thinks it is. Mm. It can be, you know, your own definition. It can be a broader definition. Yeah, that's good. Um, if you had a hundred dollars in your favorite city, what do you spend that on? In my favorite what city? A uh, hundred dollars in my favorite city. What I spend it on? 
know you got more than hundred dollars, but uh, your last hundred dollars. Last hundred dollars. Hmm. I would say. I mean, New York's my favorite city. I'd say spend it on maybe a good sushi dinner. Yeah, I, I really, I really like Issei. And, uh, Why is that? It's, it's on Bowery. Oh, it's, I need to check it's, it out. It's kind of a kind of a hole in the wall, but it has has great uh, yeah, I'm really great into sushi. sushi now actually. Yeah. So, uh, what's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days? Hmm. Uh, I would say to ignore competition Mm. uh, in the sense like don't be scared off by competition Uh, a lot of people come up with an idea and then and then they then once they start googling the idea they see oh shit five five people or 100 people already have this idea what what am i going to do yeah um i really think that it doesn't matter very much in most cases Mm. Uh, and if you can execute on your own thing you're fine and there, there's kind of a sweet spot even with competition. If, if there wasn't any competition, then that means there's, there's no market at all. So there's there's a healthy amount. Uh, if, if there's competition, to me, it just shows that there's a market. Uh, and do your own thing, kind of. That's good. Uh, where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you, Dan? Ooh, good question. Uh, yeah, they can, they can find me on Facebook, I guess. I still use Facebook, but um, yeah, I'm, I have a website, sutera.com, so you can find me on there. It's probably like the best, the best way. Uh, I'm actually thinking about starting to do some, some. I, I do startup advising already. I'm thinking to start doing some CEO coaching. Mm. Um, so if anybody's interested in that, um, hit me up. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Just want to say another massive thank you to Dan for coming on the show and dropping all that knowledge. Um, something that is obviously not public knowledge, but Dan has been such a great help to me on my startup uh, while I was in New York. Um, and he helped quite a lot. In fact, he was actually quite instrumental with the latest update of the app. So double shout out to you, Dan. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.